This is Truth Matters with Terry McCarthy. Today we are looking at part two of why I think Tim Keller is a cultural Marxist and socialist Democrat. With the current frontrunner in the Democratic Party being Bernie Sanders, I think we need to comprehend and familiarize ourselves with the terms such as democratic socialist, socialism, and what capitalism actually does for the human race. Like always, it's the teacher in me. I gotta lay a foundation. So I'm begging you here to hang in there with me because we gotta look at American history. So I closed yesterday's podcast with the 1620 story of the Mayflower Gang led by William Bradford. Okay, I can hear you snoring. Bradford tells us through his 400-year-old journal that the settlers of Plymouth Rock tried communism and socialism. And by the way, I think yesterday I was trying to say socialism fails and communism fails. And I think I said capitalism. So I, I, I don't have editing. I don't have editing software for my podcast, so let me go back and correct that. Socialism always fails, and communism always fails. So the 400-year-old journal tells us that the Plymouth Rock Gang tried communism, tried socialism. They tried it in the name of Christianity, actually, and the colony starved. Now, this was a real-life Petri dish experiment with folks dedicated to the communist principle of the good of the group and it failed. But we have another bright, shiny example of how socialism doesn't work and capitalism does well, right from the pages of American history. Robert Owen, and oddly enough, Fox News covered this today. Robert Owen, a Welsh textile manufacturer, uh, he decided he made a, you know millions of dollars, and so he decided to become a philanthropist, which is odd. So he welcomed 800 eager settlers to a commune he called New Harmony. It was 1825 on the Wabash River in Indiana. New Harmony was to be a community of equality, ushering in a new way of life. And members of the commune called it utopian, the utopian socialism. By the way, the word utopia literally means nowhere. That's what it means, utopia, nowhere, because it doesn't exist. Anyway, of course it failed. And after only two years, no one was left. Owen's son writes in a reflective way of the experiment, and this is what he says. All cooperative schemes which provide equal remuneration to the skilled and industrious and the ignorant and idle must work their own downfall. For by this unjust plan, they must of necessity eliminate the valuable members and retain only the careless, unskilled, and vicious. When I lived in the USSR, I lived in Moscow in the early 1990s, and there was a joke, and I heard it often, and the Russians loved telling it to me. Okay, so this is how the joke goes. A Russian genie appears to one of the comrades, and this is their conversation. Hello, I am a genie. I will grant you any wish you want. This is my job. I will grant you any wish you want. The only condition is your neighbor will have double. So the comrade thinks about it and he ponders it and he says, Okay, genie, I know exactly what I want. Please take off my left arm. Because socialism and this kind of... uh, redistribution of wealth and property 
always plays to our lower nature of greed and envy. It always plays that if my neighbor gets double of what I have, then I want it to be harm. I saw that firsthand um, because when nobody owns property, when everyone owns property, no one does. If everyone owns this building, then no one really owns it. And you could see that in the hallways and common areas of Moscow and also in Vilnius. The idea that, oh, that's someone else's problem. We would walk into these, these buildings and we were going to go see friends that lived in apartments in these buildings. And the, the entryway and the hallways were a nightmare. I mean, it looked like the worst ghetto you can imagine. It was filthy. It was dirty. The tile need replaced. Things were broken. You could barely make it up. The light bulbs didn't work. It was a horrible thing. And you'd walk up this common area, the hallway and stairs, and then knock on your friend's door. They'd open the door and they lived in a palace. Their apartments were posh and shiny and everything new and all the latest technology. And I would be like, why does the hallway look like that? And it was because nobody wanted to invest in something they personally didn't own. They owned their apartments, but they did not want to take care of and invest in the common areas. History is a series of experiments. Some gambles work and are adopted by society and some don't work and they're abandoned. And socialism should be abandoned. But here in the United States, the big problem is that these failures like the 1620, you know, Plymouth Colony and uh, the New Haven experiment, that those were failures. And these human experiments aren't being taught in school. For hundreds of years, the story of the first failed communist economy in America was part of every school curriculum, but progressive education found that the story was contrary to the narrative that they wanted to teach, and as a result, no one even thinks about it. It's fallen into obscurity. New Haven has fallen into obscurity. The Plymouth Rock story fallen into obscurity. And this explains why someone like Tim Keller can repackage socialism and the redistribution of wealth and get away with it. So with the, with the election coming up in November, I'm going to do a blog and a couple of podcasts, hopefully unpacking the very serious issues on why socialism fails and why socialism is not um, a viable option for the United States. All right, so let's just review a few things. Democratic socialists rely on the government to procure or you know take the resources from the people, usually through higher taxes. Um, democratic socialists demand that people through their taxes must through other means as well. I mean, it's not just through their task, the taxes, but through other means as well. They have to give their stuff to others so everyone has equal amounts. Regardless of effort, time, energy exerted, you've got to give your things to those others. Capitalism and free enterprise, on the other hand, benefit the poor through the creation of jobs, through an abundance of resources, and through a strong middle class giving to and supporting those in need. It's the teach a man to fish kind of thing. And capitalism works on reward and recompense for jobs well done and new discoveries. Actually, capitalism, it's true, the sky is the limit. And that's a great motivator for people working and trying to create and invent. So Tim Keller said in uh, Generous Justice, 
If you do not actively and generously share your resources with the poor, you are a robber. This is at the heart of socialist philosophy. Keller goes on to claim, to fail to share what you have is not just uncompassionate, but unfair and unjust. A statement that fits perfectly into democratic socialist worldview. So what's wrong with the statements? Well, first of all, what does Keller mean by robber? What's his definition? Someone who's actually breaking the law? And Keller is using hyperbole here to guilt white middle-class churchgoers into thinking that redistribution of wealth is the morally superior high ground. Everyone likes the moral superior high ground, right? But there's a bigger problem here with Keller's statement, and it has to do with the whole concept of giving and what that means to the follower of Christ. And this is not being taught to millennials and Gen Zs. This is why they're imbibing things like Tim Keller and thinking that Bernie Sanders is the moral high ground. But here is where it gets really, really under my skin. Giving is to be an act of worship for those who follow Christ Jesus. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to give out of a need for justice or even for equity. To take an Old Testament scripture from Saul's unholy sacrifice and Saul's impatience on waiting for Samuel, obedience is better than sacrifice. Giving calls us into a more intimate and more communal relationship with God. There's a biblical principle in the Old Testament to give 10% or the tithe. And we're to bring that tithe into the house of God or, or the storehouse. And that tithe is to be used to cover the expenses of the temple, give an allotment to the priest, and to distribute as there is need, not among the congregation equally, but as there is need. And that's a very good application we use for the church today. Giving, though, is not just limited to 10%. I know wonderful Christians who live on 10% and give 90% away. But it's very important to realize when the scripture says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. You can't outgive God. And I'm not talking about health and wealth and prosperity gospel. I'm talking about I've seen firsthand, I have experienced it myself, that when you give out of a heart of obedience and out of love to God, and because you are not attached to that money, you lack no good thing. You lack nothing. We lack nothing. So giving is not just to help the poor. Giving should always be with wisdom, prayer, and knowledge. We want to know that those to whom we give are going to use God's money wisely, appropriately, and honestly. So we have to be discerning, prayerful. And for married couples like me and Daryl, we need to be in agreement about how to use what God has given us. That is obedience. And that is what giving is all about. When helping the poor, sometimes money's not required. Sometimes the poor need training or someone to come alongside them and help them get out of poverty through mentoring, teaching, and friendship. I've seen firsthand the good that teaching English has done by lifting people out of poverty and empowering them to get good jobs and to assimilate into their communities. And that's vitally important. 
Jesus told us the poor will always be among you. What did he mean by that? Jesus never has said that if the poor are among you and you have money, that you're a robber. I want to paraphrase brilliant Tim Coffin from the Trinity Foundation. The guy is a great thinker. I mean, I think he's probably a genius. And I read his articles and I, I, I really try to synthesize them and process them. But they're difficult. They're, they're awfully deep. <laughs> and Tim Coffin has got a great mind on processing uh, what's going on in the United States politically as well as situations like with Tim Keller. So I'm going to try to paraphrase what Tim Kaufman says. The economics dimension of the typical social justice argument is some sort of appeal to economic equality where the sense of justice implied is that of alleviating economic needs of everyone. But the Bible doesn't teach that principle. And in fact, Tim Keller, I was listening to um, one of his sermons yesterday, and he says that we are justified by faith as Christians. And if we are justified by faith, we should fight injustice. But that's not what the scripture says at all. Nowhere in scripture is equity ever a part of God's justice. In fact, justice in God's economy means we don't get what we deserve, but he gives us grace and an abundance of mercy. If we got justice from God, we'd all be damned. Keller is using a sleight of hand technique here in bringing socialist ideals into the church. We're then indoctrinated by his books and Bible studies and convinced that this is a biblical approach to money and goods. Then Keller tells us to go and practice these principles in the real world, in schools, churches, government, politics, business, in the marketplace. And that's how millennials and Gen Zs can listen to someone like Tim Keller and then vote for Bernie Sanders because it works that way, because it applies that way. If I apply Tim Keller's teachings, I would vote for Bernie Sanders. And the contamination of these anti-biblical ideas spread throughout our culture in the name of Christianity. Have you ever seen a more fired up person than a young person who believes in social justice and is a follower of Jesus? But in reality, they are nothing more than broken, worn out, failed socialism. Tim Keller's ideas are philosophies that are in direct opposition to how God designed us. And this is why socialism and Marxism always fail. Jesus Christ has given us everything through his word to comprehend and live out what it truly means to love justly. And it has nothing to do with redistribution of wealth or giving all of our money to the poor. You know how people often say money is the root of all evil? That's a misquote, isn't it? But it's used often and is one of those phrases you hear and you think, well, that's godly. But the actual scripture is the love of money is the root of all evil. The scripture has a completely different application, not dealing with money, but the attitude of one's heart toward money. This is very similar to what Keller is doing here. He's twisting it. Democratic socialist ideals created by godless philosophers are not an appropriate life principle for any believer. 
In fact, they are antithetical to the New Testament living. Remember, Jesus and the apostles, including Paul, all lived under Roman occupation, all lived with unjust governance, and yet the church flourished. Of course, Keller and other economic equality proponents never explain that once we divide all the wealth equally, we're all equally poor. Time and again, economics have failed in nations where this principle plays out. And if we are looking at, biblical, looking at it biblically, he who does not work does not eat. And Paul goes on to say, settle down and earn the bread you eat. The cause of poverty are complex. The causes of poverty are varied. And money is not always the solution to poverty. And we can see this in people who win the lottery. What, like five years later, they're back in worse poverty than ever. Giving money to the poor without wisdom can do more harm than good. J.D. Hall writes, The only way you can perceive helping the underprivileged as being justice and not mercy is if you also believe the underprivileged are underprivileged by virtue of injustice, as opposed to things like ignorance, laziness, divine providence, or misfortune. In other words, the entire concept of social justice, which Keller preaches, assumes that the underprivileged are underprivileged because of systemic oppression. And that is Marxist ideology. I know people who live in poverty because they spend their money on alcohol or drugs. I know people who are in poverty because they don't want to work. Not 100% of the time. But we cannot also make the opposite um, generalization that underprivileged are there because they're oppressed by the system. My biggest struggle with Keller's teaching is found in the common themes of these three books that I mentioned above. In them, Keller tries to sanctify socialist philosophers such as Gustavo Gutierrez and Karl Marx and call their ideology scriptural. An ideology that instead of encouraging believers to live spirit-filled lives of holy obedience and communion with God, instead of a clarion call to win souls and rescue the perishing, instead of reminding us of the Great Commission, Keller is telling us that to love justice is more important than winning souls and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Keller's main themes in these books can be lived out by non-believers. So not only is this a misinterpretation of scripture, but it lacks an important element of Christ-centered living and thinking of the world around us. It's a radical departure from the core mission of the church. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we can look at it and say, it's another gospel. Keller wants us to change the culture. He's dissatisfied with the status quo. He wants a revolution of vanguards. It's always a mistake when Christians are called upon to cry, Revolution! The cry of every believer should be Reformation, not Revolution. And as Presbyterian preacher Tim Keller should know, Revolution doesn't solve society's ills. Only through a Reformation of Jesus Christ and God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of His Word is culture changed. In scripture, we're not called to change our culture. We're called to bring Jesus to all of humankind. And the byproduct of that is then a changed culture. Bringing truth to the individual can then bring truth to the culture. Look at Ephesus. 
Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, simple tent makers, turned Ephesus on its ear by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And what happened as a result? The culture turned from idol worship and put the silversmiths out of business. Transformation always begins with the preaching of Jesus and him crucified and the power of his resurrection. This is the gospel, and cultures may or may not change. But this is the hill we would die on, not social justice, not economic equity, not democratic socialism. Of course, Christians are to do the right thing, like fight slavery. The abolition movement was primarily driven and executed by believers. The battle against sex trafficking today is a battle led by Christians who are fighting for the oppressed. These are always, we are always to be salt and light. And these are ways that we can be salt and light and truth bearers in our culture. But for me, Keller's constant preaching about social justice and generous justice eclipsed the motivation that should spur us to good works. Love for Christ and commitment to his word. Any good work not done out of a central love and worship of Jesus is a carnal work and it throws us off balance. 1 Corinthians 13.3 If I give all I possess to the poor and do not have love, I gain nothing. It's Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Why do I say Keller teaches another gospel? I'll use Keller's own words here. Quote, When Jesus suffered with us, He was identifying with the oppressed, not with the oppressor. Jesus came to identify with the poor and the oppressed. That's a direct quote, and it's straight out of liberation theology. Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus suffered for and identified with all humankind to redeem both the oppressed and the oppressor, to free all of us from sin. That's why at the cross he prayed, Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. He was praying for those who nailed him to the cross, the oppressors. He loved both the executioner and the crowd who wept seeing him suffer. And Keller insists and actually quotes Gustavo Gutierrez that God gives preferential treatment to the poor. But scripture teaches that God is no respecter of persons. He loves the poor and rich equally, and before God, we are all sinners in the need of saving grace. We need Jesus. The scripture says, There is no rich nor poor, nor male nor female, nor Greek nor Hebrew. All before God are the same. Imagine if Keller's teachings were, God prefers the female. We would see that as off-balanced and unbiblical, but the teachings about the oppressed appear to be so righteous and so virtuous that no one dares say, "Uh, that's not right, because it sounds like we're saying we're not for the oppressed and that we're for oppressing the poor. (laughs) I think we must use discernment. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than in Christ. We are to be discerners and we're to test the spirits, especially of those in leadership who are preaching and writing in the name of Christianity. Okay, 
This isn't exactly what the scripture means, but there is an element of it that can apply here. Know those who labor among you. We don't just honor someone because he or she is in leadership in our Christian circle. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that those who are call, who call themselves teachers and preachers are to be held to even a higher level of accountability. Call it social justice, generous justice, or plain old political correctness. They are all unbiblical. And Keller has remarketed, repackaged, and refurbished socialism in order for Christians to embrace it. And Keller does a good job, whether intentionally or not, of cloaking this ungodly philosophy in a garment of white and telling his followers, it's nothing but kindness and compassion. And wouldn't Jesus want that of us? Hungarian-born economist Peter Bauer once wrote, Politicians and intellectuals have supplied a veneer of intellectual respectability to envy and resentment, otherwise known as socialism. Boy, you could add that, add to that Christian leaders like Tim Keller. It is a deceptive veneer, and it is his subservient advocacy for socialism. Now, here's the irony. Tim Keller, who tells Christians they should not have excessive amounts of money and surplus and actually tells us that if we have money and the poor do not have that money, we're robbers. This same Tim Keller lives on Roosevelt Island in New York City, an area that has a cost median of housing that is over $2 million. You cannot live on Roosevelt Island for under a million dollars. And sadly, the capitalist society Keller is so hell-bent on criticizing and labeling ungodly is the same society that made Keller a millionaire. Keller left Redeemer Presbyterian in 2017, and his salary was $500,000 a year. And his book sales are estimated at upward of $3 million. Take a look at the Speakers Bureau that represents Keller, and his speaking fees are between five dollars and $10,000, depending on length of speech and location. I don't mind Keller being paid tons of money, but just like the socialist and Marxist he enjoys quoting, he is scolding the little people for one thing and living something completely different. Isn't that the very definition of hypocrisy? You want to know of people who lived in poverty because of their convictions and commitment to Jesus Christ and of reaching the poor? Look at Mother Teresa, St. Francis of Assisi, Dwight L. Moody, and Ira Sankey. All of them have given up wealth and well-paying jobs to join the poor and minister among those living in poverty. I don't see Keller doing that. Keller isn't waiving his speaking fees or even giving his books away for free, but he wants me to give my hard-earned wages and my hard-earned resources to the poor. I'd really like to see him live by example. With the kind of money that Tim Keller has, he could make a significant difference. Keller said, If you do not actively and generously share your resources with the poor, you're a robber. To fail to share what you have is not just uncompassionate, but unfair and unjust. Well, it looks to me that Keller is the biggest robber of all. Uh, I see this uh, podcast along with the blog and, and my YouTube channel as my new classroom. I like that image a friend gave me a few days ago. 
I'm compelled and urged to help us navigate the murky and cloudy waters of our culture these days. Perhaps with my experience and my love for research, maybe I can do some good. Not just a ranting and raving granny, but as a friend and sister in Christ who cares about these issues. If if Bernie Sanders, and please Jesus, no, but if Bernie Sanders becomes the President of the United States, it would be the demise of our nation. That's why I want you to arm yourself and get a clear picture of what would happen if Bernie Sanders became our president. Hopefully, this might be able to help you defend capitalism in a way to convince fence-sitters that socialism doesn't work. Well, I was touched yesterday as a young 20-something found me on Twitter and then read my blog on Tim Keller and socialism. Carrie writes, This was the most informative and educational blog I think I've ever read. There are so many groups to keep straight, and I never feel confident that my thinking is on target on any of it, and it makes me lack confidence in discussions. Thank you so much for this thorough post. I am new to following you, and I really appreciate your writings and your perspective. And that's why I do this. Have a great day, people. I hope to see you tomorrow. Remember, this is Truth Matters with Terry McCarthy. If you listen to this podcast, please take time to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and I would love to hear a comment. Even if it's in uh, conflict to what I'm saying, I want to hear feedback. Thanks so much, and I'll see you tomorrow.